section is called Chudalongkorn Hospital, August 82 to January 83. The conditions awaiting the monks in the hospital could not have been better. Lung Po was given a VIP suite that included a room in which he could receive guests and a bedroom for his attendants. A team of six of the best neurologists in the country was on hand, and they conducted every possible test that the technology of the time would allow. They concluded from the tests that there was no tumour, merely an unusually rapid onset of the next stage of the illnesses with which he had already been diagnosed. Diabetes, cerebral atrophy secondary to arteriosclerosis, and multiple cerebral infarction. The condition of Lumpur's brain, the senior neurologist pronounced, was like that of a man of 90. He was prescribed a cocktail of drugs for his brain condition, insulin together with a special diet for his diabetes, and daily physiotherapy. Lumpur's hands shook. He was quiet and withdrawn, sometimes picking things up and then putting them down again and again. The drugs helped a little. His appetite improved and so did his blood sugar levels. But new, worrying symptoms developed. If asked a question, his intended yes would emerge as a no and vice versa. Once when asked if he needed to urinate, he said no. Then as soon as the receptacle was removed, he began to urinate. For a brief second or two, it was funny. Every day the attendant monks would lift Lung Po into his wheelchair and take him for a ride to a shady part of the hospital grounds. On one occasion, a woman catching sight of Lung Po dropped to her knees to bow to him, urging her young son to do the same. The boy ignored his mother. Remaining rooted to the spot, he stared with an unblinking gaze at the old monk in the wheelchair. With a great effort of will, Lung Po bent his body forward and extended his right arm very slowly towards the boy in a gesture of blessing and loving-kindness. The boy moved forward in response and, hands in Anjali, inclined his forehead onto Lumpur's open hand. Such touching moments were becoming more and more rare. In October, Lumpur started to refuse to take the food he was being given, uh, he was being spoon-fed, clamping his jaws tightly shut and flailing his arms. Nobody could be sure whether he genuinely did not want to eat or if this behaviour was just another symptom of his illness. The attendants coaxed and cajoled and implored him to eat. For everyone involved, these were awful days. At the beginning of December, Ajahn Liam told Lung Po that his speech no longer made sense and invited him to keep silent if he so wished. Lung Po seemed to be listening attentively. He never spoke again. In the footnote to that, it says, Joseph Kappel, ex-Ajahn Pabakaro, reports an occasion when Lung Po spoke one last word. On returning to Wat Bapong in January of 1983, he asked Lung Po whether he would like to tour the area around his new kuti in his wheelchair, and Lung Po replied, yes, literally, bye, go. So that was Lung Po's last utterance, was bye. Two days after the invitation, Lumpur had a stroke. Violent convulsions shook all the strength out of the left side of his body. 
he was left looking like a shipwreck of a man, not long for death. The monks were determined that if Lung Po was soon to end his days, it should be in the monastery rather than a hospital. The doctors were reluctant to discharge their patient, but when the queen was informed of his condition and Lung Po's long-stated wish to spend his last days of his life at Wat Bapong, she settled the matter. An Air Force plane was arranged to take him back to Ubon. When Ajahn Liam informed Lung Po, he opened his eyes and looked about, which at that time was his way of showing that he was pleased. The, uh, uh, the beginning of the book starts with um, the image of uh, Joseph um, Pabakaro uh, carrying him down the steps of the plane back to Ubon. So that... Uh, I'll read, uh, read that for you. The 20th of January, 1983. At the small provincial airport of Ubon Rajatani in northeast Thailand, a group of Buddhist monks and lay supporters look up to the sky. Nearby, a white ambulance is parked on the runway. A loud droning sound can be heard. Its source soon traced to a Thai Air Force plane lumbering into land. After the plane taxis and comes to a halt, its door opens and reveals an unusual and moving sight. An imposingly large western monk starts to descend from the plane, cradling in his arms a much older and smaller Thai monk. This frail and helpless-looking figure is the revered master Lung Po Cha. After five long months of tests and consultations in a Bangkok hospital, he has returned to Ubon in order to spend the last days of his life at home in his monastery, Wat Nong Bapong surrounded by his disciples. As it transpired, the last days of Lung Po's life came to exceed 3,000. It was not until 5.20 a.m. on the 16th of January 1992, so nine years later, that he finally passed away. So that's how the, the book opens with that image of uh, uh, Pabakro uh, carrying uh, Lung Po Cha down. And there's a photograph of them, uh, him arriving um, uh, not not in this book, but that it exists in circulation of the <coughs> Pabakro with uh, Lumpucha in his arms. So then the next section is called Wat Bapong, The Silent Years. Ajahn Liam was not convinced that this was necessarily the end. Lumpo was still only 64 years old. He believed that most of Lumpo's vital organs were functioning normally. And there was no reason why, if looked after well, he might not live on for years rather than months or days. Longer than some of us, he joked with another of the senior monks, and he was right. On his return to Wat Bapong, Lung Po was invited to reside in a new custom-built dwelling constructed on an open piece of land at the northern end of the monastery, the Nursing Kuti, or Kuti Payaban, as it came to be known, was a brick-built bungalow in the modern Western style. It contained two main rooms, one set up like an intensive care unit in a private hospital, the other left unfurnished for use by the attendants. Brick walls projected at right angles from the midpoint of the kuti at either side, separating the private from the public domain. Doors in the walls allowed the attendants to admit visitors at agreed times, when the curtains of Lumpur's room would be drawn. That kuti was built by an Australian monk, Tan Pomuto, and uh, who had been at Nanashat when when I was there. He was very 
uh, handy builder and one who was uh, particularly gifted with brick construction. So that was his uh, his gift to the uh, the community and for Lumpur Cha. And so that, that kuti still stands there. So those of you who've been to Wat Bapong, um, <coughs> from where the, the Chetia is, there's a, a, um, uh, a roadway for about a hundred meters from the Chetia, and then the Kuti sits at the uh, at the far end of that roadway. So, so as you come out of the nursing Kuti, then the, the Chetia is right in front of you. So that's where Lumpur Cha spent like, the last nine years of his life was in that that nursing Kuti that was uh, built by uh, Tan Pamuto, and that's where um, <coughs> he was he was cared for, and um, it was set up in a very good way. So that that turned out to be a very helpful um, a, uh, arrangement so that there was a, a side of the, the building that people could come and and, uh, and visit and then there was a side that where Lumpur was uh, secluded and people couldn't uh, couldn't intrude every day people would come to catch a glimpse of Lumpur lying in bed and to bow to him beneath the window in the evenings weather permitting attendants would wheel Lumpur outside Guests would gather on the lawn at the back of the kuti to pay their respects. The nursing kuti soon became a place of pilgrimage for people from every corner of the country. Once a week, on the observance days, the quarters of the moon, the Sangha of Wat Pananachat, the International Forest Monastery, would come to chant a selection of Pali verses that Lumpur had been most fond of. Chief amongst these was the Vipassana Bhumi chant that lists the bases for insight. A nursing schedule was established comprising 15-day blocks following the monastic lunar calendar, divided into 30 12-hour shifts. A steady stream of monks arrived from branch monasteries to volunteer their services. Each shift was manned by four monks and one novice, with a night shift supplemented by a male nurse provided by Ubon General Hospital. A local doctor, who was a disciple of Lumpur, conducted a daily examination. It was agreed that there should never be less than two monks in the room with Lumpur at any time, day or night. By the time Lumpur returned to Watpapong, his two chief attendants, Ajahn Pabakro and Ajahn Bunlert, had absorbed a great deal of knowledge about geriatric nursing. They began to pass on what they'd learned to the new volunteers. Both monks were intimidating, albeit in different ways. The American Ajahn Pabakro, for his sheer physical presence, and the ease with which he could shift into his old military officer persona. He'd been a, a captain in the um, cavalry, in the helicopter uh, cavalry in the Vietnam War. <clears throat> so he could enter into his old military officer persona when circumstances demanded it. Ajahn Bunlert, a Thai of Chinese ancestry, for his unusually direct manner and his unwillingness to suffer fools gladly. For this particular job, they were perfectly suited. Each nursing shift was selected to include a mixture of the experienced and the untried. Monks learned how to lift and turn Lumpur, how to carry him to the toilet, how to make beds, how to take important measurements and make records. They learned about nutrition, physiotherapy and more. Although the monks were new to all of this, they were highly motivated. Nursing Lumpur was considered by them a great honour and the Vinaya discipline had already accustomed them to the adoption of extremely precise and detailed procedures for relating to the physical world. Infection was the greatest danger, particularly through the respiratory tract. The swabbing and sterilizing routines acquired an almost religious tone. 
After some years, when doctors recommended using a nasal feeding tube, the attendant monks experimented, it, experimented with it on each other before using it on Lumpur. So uh, that was the standard procedure, that you had to put the, the feeding tube through your own nose, down into your own stomach, and use it before you could do it on Lumpur. So that, he, you, know, that you had to know what it felt like uh, in order to, um, to, to be sort of in a position to, to do that for Lumpur. So it was a major uh, <coughs> training for, for people, but very sensible, so that because you don't know what someone's feeling, and when someone is paralyzed, um, they can't say, oh, that hurts, you know, please could you move it to the left, or oh, by the way, my, my right ear is itching, could you give that a scratch? They can't, you can't speak, you can't communicate, so that, that um, everything that's done, there has to be the putting the, per, the, the the mind into what the, the the recipient is feeling, and to to think it through, and not just be taken up with the the task and thinking, oh, I should be doing this, and then forgetting that there's someone who's feeling the results of that, and so uh, that was the the standard procedure. And uh, uh, the one of the amazing things was that uh, in the nine years of uh, being bedridden, Lumpur never had a bed sore, not once. So any of you who have ever taken care of uh, people in, in hospitals or in uh, the elderly that uh, for nine years and never getting a bed sore that was quite the, uh, a uh, powerful indication of how good his care was and that uh, the, the the kind of um, thoughtfulness and the effectiveness of, of the efforts of, of the monks although Lumpur was silent and largely unresponsive he was treated with the same respect as he had always been the attendants adhered strictly to the customary forms of address, preventing any lapse into careless or over -familiar, overly familiar behavior. They bowed to him when entering or leaving the room. Before touching his body for any reason, they raised their hands in Anjali and asked for his permission. They spoke in low voices in his presence and only on necessary matters. Often, in a corner of the room, an attendant monk with, a, with free time would quietly sit in meditation. In the early years, Lumpur occasionally showed some interest in the external world, at least on the 26th of February 1983, when the Queen was the guest of honour at the Upositor Hall consecration ceremony. While visiting Lumpur at the nursing kuti, the attendants noticed Lumpur making an immense effort to maintain his sitting posture and remain alert. On her return to Bangkok, the Queen arranged for Lumpur to receive regular treatment from a particularly gifted masseur in her employ. Initially, the massages produced some small improvements, but these were nullified by further seizures and were discontinued after three years. In late 1984, the most violent seizures so far required Lumpur to spend some days in the ICU room reserved for him in Ubon General Hospital, where he was also treated for pneumonia. The next major crisis came in March 1987, Lumpur, suffering from severe breathing difficulties, was rushed to Ubon Hospital, where it became clear that without drastic intervention, he would not survive. The doctors advised a tracheotomy. So they cut open the, the windpipe and put a, a tube inside. It was the first serious test of how far the Sangha elders were prepared to go to prolong Lumpur's life. Most monks had long been opposed to anything they believed to be, quote, unnatural, unquote, unnatural treatments. Invasive procedures had always been considered the step too far. 
An emergency meeting chaired by the governor of Ubon was attended by senior monks and doctors. The doctors put their case passionately. They reassured the monks that the process was quick, safe and reversible. Most importantly, there was no alternative. Logic was on their side, and the monks were badly torn. Whatever their views on natural death, the sight of Lung Po fighting for every breath and choking on his phlegm was difficult for them to endure. A tipping point was reached when they were informed that the Queen had entreated them to give permission. The operation was performed that day. Less than a week later, Lung Po had recovered sufficiently to return to Wat Bapong. In the period following the tracheotomy, Lung Po showed a new resistance to being fed. A troubled Ajahn Liam formally requested his forgiveness if they had made the wrong decision and begged him to take nourishment. Lung Po acquiesced. For the following five years, the story of Lung Po's condition was one of inexorable decline. Periods of relative stability were brutally truncated by crises, each one of which, having been weathered, left his body functioning on a slightly reduced level. He was hospitalized on a number of further occasions with pneumonia. An account of the atmosphere in the nursing kuti during this period was given by Ajahn Anando, the American abbot of Chittaviveka Forest Monastery in England. In late 1988, he returned to Thailand to visit his old monastery and to offer his services to his teacher. This is Ajahn Anando's uh, record of it. I like the early morning very much because you can spend time alone with Lumpur. From 2 a.m. until maybe 5 a.m. is the period when he seems to sleep the most peacefully. Then a rather busy time follows, depending on what day of the week it is. We might clean part of the room very quietly and prepare things for waking him at 5.30 to bathe and exercise him. So that there was a whole exercise routine that they would they would do with him, sort of moving all of his limbs and moving his body, so that uh, along with the um, sort of just turning him and such like, his also his his muscles didn't atrophy while he was there in the bed. Then the weather and his strength permitting, we put him in the chair, the one that was sent from England with the money offered by people in the West. It's a really superlative chair. It does everything except put itself away at night. And uh, it's, it's true, that was uh, when uh, Ajahn Babakaro came here. So after his time of nursing uh, Lumpur Cha, then uh, in about <coughs> 1986, then he came here and joined the community at, at Amravati. And so then uh, during that time, he um, uh, he, was, he he's a very serious... Um, when he puts his mind on a task, you have to get out of the way. <laughs> So he did some very serious research, hunting for the, the perfect wheelchair, knowing Lumpur, knowing his needs, and then just sort of combing. Um, this was all before the internet. This was like the visiting companies and phoning people up and doing this uh, amazing amount of, of research to try and find the, uh, the ideal wheelchair and then finding it and then, uh, and then getting it all organized and get packed up and, and getting it to, to, to Thailand. So that was uh, one of uh, Joseph's great, uh, great contributions. Um, that that uh, Everest Jennings, I think it was uh, the company that made it. But somehow I remember that. I'm quite sure why. <clears throat> then Ananda goes on to say, "There's a great sense of there's a sense of great respect and affectionate caring that goes into the nursing. Although he has been bedridden for almost six years, he has no bed sores. 
Visiting doctors and nurses are quite amazed at the good condition of his skin. The monks who are nursing him never eat or drink anything, nor sleep in the room. There is very little talking. Usually you only talk about the next thing you have to do to, uh, to look after his care. If you do talk, you talk in a quiet manner. So, it's not just a room we nurse him in, it's actually a temple. So also, um, this is not written about here, but um, uh, during that time, uh, Ajahnananda was, uh, was often into um, kind of alternative healing and um, various different uh, uh, kind of, um, uh, say, uh, different methods of, of, um, uh, of, kind of, of treatment and such like. And he was, uh, at that time at Chithurst, there was a faith healer, Albert Knuckles, who used to, to come and uh, meet the Sangha and then do healings on various people. So um, during one of those nighttime shifts, and this was Ajahn Anando's own, own account of it, so Lumpur is lying sleeping in bed. So this is so Lumpur can't move himself. You know he's paralyzed. And then during the during the the night, then uh, uh, Ajahn Ananda had this idea. Oh, maybe I should do some healing on him. Maybe that that'd be a really good thing to do. So Lumpur is lying on the bed, and Ananda puts his hands over Lumpur's chest, and kind of goes into sort of healing mode. And then apparently, Lumpur sat up, <laughs> opened his eyes. And kind of glared at him, <laughs> and then lay back down. So, and, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> so, he might have been hallucinating, but uh, he tells it. He, t- he would tell it as a as a genuine story. Like Lumpur was not supposed to be able to sit up; he was paralyzed. But during that 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 moment, he sat up and 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 gave Anando the sort of. Do you really think I need help? <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was very interesting. Um, uh, I went to visit also in in uh, eighty eight after the the rains retreat of nineteen eighty eight. That was my tenth rains, and uh, Lumpur Sameda gave me permission to go back and visit Thailand again. So I had the chance to go and, and stay at Wat Pananachat and, and then to to <coughs> visit Wat Bapong and to to see Lumpur. And so. What, uh, the uh, as it said every uh, every week the sangha from Wat Nanashar would l- go over in a large group and they they put out these mats outside the um, on on the bank outside the the kuti and then the sangha would gather and then they would chant the vipassana bumi chanting and the purita and the Lumpur would be sitting there in, the, in his wheelchair and so that was part of the the routine uh, every week <coughs> but otherwise Lumpur was usually inside the room and so that you would <coughs> But there's a glass windows all around, so Lumpur would be in his in the room, either in in the bed or, or in a wheelchair, and so then you'd you'd be looking at him through the glass, but you'd have your own reflection, and then the reflection of all of the people gathered uh, behind you, so that because that's you know the, the the image from the from the outside would be reflected in the in the window, and so there was this this strange mixture of both you know there's Lumpur. But then there's this whole field of his disciples, like uh, in the Lumpur the person is one thing, but then Lumpur as in the embodiment of the community of those who have gathered together. So it was a, it was a, an interesting sort of juxtaposition of like, well, is Lumpur just that body there, or is that, or is all of this the the product of his his life and his teaching and all of his efforts that's that's also present? And the two kind of overlay with each other because the windows were. Um, they were sort of they were tinted so that uh, the the reflected image of all the people gathered around 
was as clear as the image of Lumpur inside the room. So that the two were kind of were, were laid right on top of each other. So you could shift your focus from the person in the room or to the people in the reflection, and they were just sort of mushed together. And so, if you can follow what I'm saying, it was a uh, it was a very interesting sort of like a like a double exposure in a in a photograph. You got the two images just planted right on top of each other, and also with with Lumpur, uh, like I was saying in the morning reflection about that sense of there no, not being anybody there. That yeah, there was this person who was five foot three tall, and he was uh, he was a northeast Thai person. He had a, a round face and. a and a, a, a big uh, belly, and uh, he had this personality, and you know these hands and these feet, and that was him. But also that you couldn't pin him down to that person. And uh, <clears throat> another experience I had of a similar nature, uh, actually in that same year, in 1988, I was spent the rains retreat in the forest at Chithos, because in those days we just had one kuti in in the forest at Chithos, and we take it in turns. So nowadays there's about a dozen there, but there was only one kuti, and so we would uh, we would take it in turns uh, to <clears throat> to go and spend a, a vasa there. So during that time, that that rains retreat uh, in the kuti, so there was two of the lay supporters uh, of uh, of Chithurst had both been diagnosed with cancer recently, and one of the monks had been very ill for a long time, and and Nambucha was all paralyzed in the in the. Uh, Wapapong in, in Thailand. So uh, every and I had a kind of totally open schedule, just me and the kuti in the forest. So I had you know, kind of open schedule. So I made part of my daily routine was uh, I have a, an hour long meta meditation I would do and would sort of bring these, uh, do some chanting and bring these various people to mind. And I don't have a a mind that thinks in images very much, mostly words. Big surprise, but uh, <laughs> but. Um, so, but what I found it was it was kind of it was quite eerie because every day um, when I would imagine these two lay people, the mental image of, of both of them would come quite clearly to mind as I as I thought of them and sort of uh, sent forth uh, feelings of loving kindness and wishing them well and recovery from their their illnesses. And so, the, and then the mental image of the the monk who was resident at Chithurst was a, was a little bit fuzzier, kind of a little bit more kind of. Um, fragile around the edges, but when I tried to bring Lumpur Cha to mind, I could never get any kind of visual image. My my mind would just go completely spacious. There'd just be this kind of this bright light and no no person. There's no no human figure, no face. It was just and so when the first time that that happened, I thought oh, that's kind of interesting. And then the next day it was the same. The next day it was the same. The next day it was the same. And every day it was the same. So whenever I tried to think of kind of him, <laughs> there was just this open space. And so, uh, of course, that can just be projection, yeah, naturally. But uh, it was also, even if it was just projection, it was a, a very insightful projection, <laughs> because you know the the mind tries to create the person. Lumpur is that sick person, um, and uh, that's that's him. That's him. That, that's that body. That personality. That story. But then you, in this kind of uh, way of, of of reflecting and the the experience of it, you see, well, he's. He's not just that. That, that. That's that's only part of the picture, and uh, <clears throat> and so that uh, don't don't reduce the 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 what's what the what the reality is to this little package of uh, of humanness. Uh, and another uh, thing in, in the same vein, um, 
because oftentimes people would come and visit Wat Pong and they'd see Lung Po, and uh, so he looked quite shocking. You know, he'd just be sort of sitting in the wheelchair. You know, he, he had no muscle tone really, and so his face would just sort of be his his cheeks would be sunk in. They they would wouldn't have his teeth in, so his cheeks would be sunken in, his mouth open, and. Uh, uh, as uh, as Lumpur Sumedho described, just like just like a sack of flesh sitting in this wheelchair, and so oftentimes when people came to visit, they go, "Oh, Lumpur, Lumpur, oh, so I'm happy for you. Oh, this is terrible. This is so awful." And they just would see, and they'd be just be physically shocked and and you know, horrified and break into tears, and um, and so uh, <clears throat> and then when you were sitting there with him or, or looking through the through the the window. Um, and and looking at him through the through the glass, there uh, again you get these sort of different waves of perception. So for one moment you'd be quite sort of shocked, like, oh he looks so terrible, so awful, and then you get this very distinct feeling like, um, you know, do not weep for me. It's you that are in trouble. <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> don't be don't be fooled by uh, external appearances. And, and again, that might just be projection, but it, it was also very, very clear, like that when you had that thing, oh, Lumpur, I'm so sorry for you. There will be this very, you know, like immediate intuitive sense of like, I'm fine. You know, you're the one who who needs sympathy. <laughs> you're you're in trouble, not me. And and again, there there might be a certain amount of projection or assumption, or imagination in there, but that. I, I tend to trust that very strong sort of intuitive sense, and it was it was very very distinct, and that um, that's yeah. I, I was also many the the last theatrical performance I did was as Jesus in a, a uh, an audio play. <laughs> it's called The Man Born to Be King. I, I was a very um, badly behaved student at school, and so I was one of the most senior pupils in the school, but I was. There were people who were three years junior to me who had who were prefects or who had kind of higher ranks. But even though I was, I was of been in the school a long time, but they they wouldn't give me any kind of authority because I was mischievous. But the uh, the head of the English department did cast me as Jesus in this play, which some of the other masters thought was a slightly incongruous <laughs> choice for the role of the savior of humanity. <laughs> Anyway, it was it was it was, uh, it was it was a play by Dorothy L. Sayers called "The Man Born to Be King," and there's this line where Jesus says, "Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me; weep for yourselves." And that, that's what came to my mind when I was seeing Lumpur Chai. It's like, "Don't weep for me; weep for yourself." <laughs> that I, and that, and uh, that sense of, "I'm fine." You know, the, the, this just looks horrible from the outside, but really, I'm uh, I'm fine. And so, even though, like, you have these exchanges where, so Lumpur Liam is saying, Lumpur, you know, you're, you seem to be refusing food. Terribly sorry if we did the wrong thing, but you know, please, out of compassion, uh, please continue to accept food if you can. And then he did. So that there, <clears throat> there's a sort of uh, when there, there could be an interfacing of, of struggle, but uh, the also uh, again, you know, I can't. Uh, pretend I would be able to read Lumpur's mind, but that intuitive sense of, of uh, you know, do not weep for me, weep for yourself, <laughs> was was very. It wasn't a conceptual thought; it was a, like a very strong intuitive sense, and that uh, 
like, and it almost I could almost hear Lumpur laughing, like, "You think I'm in trouble, man? You know, <laughs> have you got this the wrong way around?" You know, in the kind of Isan dialect, you know, so like, like you know, you're really back to front. I'm fine. You know, don't don't cry for me. <clears throat> so that uh, I, I think it's is important to uh, to consider that. Also, during that time, I was talking about these various psychics who'd come and talked about Lumpur's previous life as a as a general. But uh, I'm not sure if it was the same people or others. But also during that time, um, one or two uh, monks who, who had reputation of having psychic powers came to visit him, and they said that um, uh, again, independently, you know, without sort of swapping stories, that they, they uh, had said, made similar th- uh, comments about Lumpur's state of mind. That uh, <clears throat> one of them at least said, well. Uh, actually, his body is quite uncomfortable. Subjectively, is quite is quite painful. And you know, he if he has an itch, he can't scratch it. If something's aching, he can't tell you. So his body is quite painful a lot of the time. But mostly, he's not paying attention to his body. It's only when he has to interact with people, then he'll sort of come to the surface. But mostly, and they said he he's mostly spending his time in the arahat samadhi. So he's just like not. Uh, engaging with the sense world uh, or, or with the body feelings because it's just so unpleasant. You know, so why would you bother? <laughs> so they say he, so his uh, his mind is is quite um, sort of comfortably uh, abiding, but uh, you know even though things look pretty desperate from, from the outside. So you know don't be concerned. And so it was a tour, uh, at least a couple, maybe more people who were able to read minds were. Had said the the same impression that he's act, he's actually sort of disconnected his attention from the body a lot of the time, and so that uh, you know he's he's quite just sort of put his put his mind into a different uh, uh, different mode, so you know, it's really not that uncomfortable or distressing for him. Uh, another of the um, the stories from that that period, and I included it in the uh, introduction to uh, the life and teachings of Lumpur Cha and the. Uh, the uh, introduction to the collected teachings where um, there are two monks even though it's, it's talked about of them being quite harmonious and sort of polite and very quiet on a certain occasion two monks got into an argument uh, in the in the, the nursing room and so uh, and Lumpur was was uh, sitting uh, sort of propped up in in the bed and these two monks started started arguing with each other and voices were getting raised and suddenly Lumpur coughed and this lump of phlegm flew out of his mouth and went straight between the two monks and slapped into the wall behind them. So, okay. so the argument came to a quick stop at that point. So even Lumpur could even teach with flying phlegm <laughs> when, when necessary. Which is pretty gang, as I would say, pretty, pretty skillful maneuver to, to make. So that uh, that... Um, uh, I feel it's a uh, uh, you know also that during this time, uh, Lumpur Liam, uh, as we were talking about yesterday, he was the senior monk of Wapapong, and just like Pabakaro and Ajahn Bunla, were, were getting a lot of flack and negativity from from others. And uh, if so, Pabakaro, he after Lumpur was settled at Wapapong, then he Ajahn Pabakaro came and joined the community here in England in uh, eighty five. And um, 
so that uh, Ajahn Bunla came uh, a little while after. But um, the Lumpoliam was recipient of a huge amount of flack and negativity because, of course, he's right in the firing line and people's concerns about, we should do this, we shouldn't do that, we should do this, we shouldn't do that. So uh, all of Lumpoliam's equanimity was needed uh, in that, that role because of, uh, of uh, being, um, A, the sort of the head monk of Wapapong, but definitely not Lumpur. You know, you're, not, you're not the abbot, you're not Lumpur, you can't tell us what to do and how things should be. So that was a huge test for him, both in, on a personal level, receiving a lot of um, strong feelings from people, you know, well-intentioned most of the time, but also quite, uh, say, pointed or critical or, or challenging for him. So it was a really a, a strong demand on him to be equanimous, but also having to lead the community. And so this, during that, that period of nine or ten years, Lumpur's there, but he's not there. He's physically alive, but he's not. He, he's like, a bit like the queen, you know. She's there, but she can't control anything. You know, it's just present, but has no power. And so that uh, the during that time, then it was a it was this huge challenge for for Lumpur Liam to uh, help the community to establish itself without Lumpur Char's guidance and without sort of putting himself in the position of okay, well, I'm in charge now, and I'll. I'll uh, I'll say what has to be done and how things have to be. So that was a, a, an immensely important transitional time. And also, that was also the, the years that Chuthurst and you know, Amravati were getting uh, established. And um, you know, the community over in, in the West here was, was sort of finding its, its roots. So it was, a, well, again, not having Lumpucha present to, to give guidance. And, and so that um, Amra, you know, Amravati wasn't even a thought in Lumpur Sumedho's head when when uh, Lumpur Cha left the, left the picture, they literally just opened Chithurst. You know. uh, they'd, <coughs> they'd, op- they'd moved onto the property in June and, and uh, Lumpur Cha came back to, to Thailand in, in early July. And so that uh, um, he was never able to, cons- Lumpur Sameda was never able to consult him about Amravati or, or the Order of Siladara or anything of that nature. He had to kind of do that all on his own. So that period, particularly for, for Lumpur Liam, I think there's a huge amount of credit to him that he was able to help the community stay together and both have a very sincere and comprehensive support and respect for Lumpur Cha, but also helping the community to move on from that. And so this, this strange decade of Lumpur, Lumpur Cha there but not there, present but absent, uh, and the, the community had to learn how to make its own decisions and to, to sort of look after its own affairs without Lumpur being there to, to guide, which he'd been such a strong and, and clear and, and very, very competent leader for, for so many years. So that uh, it's a, an amazing achievement, I think, particularly for, for Lumpur Liam, but other members of the, the, the monastic community as well that enable things to hold together. Because the, the normal... Um, process is that once the, the, the great teacher uh, gets ill and dies and passes away then things fragment very easily and then the disciples go their own separate ways and the, if the main monastery survives it just sort of becomes a kind of museum uh, a mausoleum for the for the great uh, for the great one the great being and but it doesn't maintain its vitality as a, as a training uh, center as a living community so it's an immense credit to, to Lumpur Liam and, and those um, senior members of the community. Like uh, uh, 
Lumpur Mahamon and um, uh, Lumpur Jan and um, uh, Lumpur Anek and, and ma uh, many others who, who helped to really guide the community and help it to, to flourish during that, that period. So it was no, no small thing. So then the last paragraph of this section <coughs> is as follows. In 1990, Lumpur suffered from heart failure due to clogged arteries. And once more he survived. But time finally ran out at the beginning of 1992. Lumpur's kidneys started to shut down, and the essential organs depending on them inevitably followed. Early on the morning of the 16th of January, Lumpur, Prabodhinyana Thera, the monk known throughout the Theravada Buddhist world as Ajahn Chah, passed away. So 5.20 in the morning, January the 16th. 1992, and Lumpur Sumedha was in Thailand at that time. He was leading a, a, a meditation retreat over at Wat Khun, which is um, in Pibun, um, uh, not far away from uh, from Wat Bapong. So then he was able to come straight over and be with uh, with Lumpur um, just after he he passed away. Um, and then uh, Ajahn Mahabur came straight down from Udon as soon as he heard. He made that the trip that day, and then uh, joined together with the community, gave a Dhamma talk to the whole Mopopong community um, the, you know, the day that Lumpur Chah died. So even though sometimes over the years the Ajahn Mahabur, Ajahn Chah disciples would kind of squabble with each other or kind of, you know, our Arahant is more, in, more Arahant-like than your Arahant, you know, the kind of st stupid things people can get into. Yeah. That uh, the two of them had tremendous respect for each other, and to, uh, so uh, you know, Ajahn Mahabur came literally this, that very day. He came straight down from from Udon and joined with the community. And then, uh, when uh, had, they had the funeral a year later, then he gave, he was the one giving the the main uh, dhamma talk on the the night of the funeral. So, any questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes. I uh, I'm sure they are. I mean, not, uh, the the one on the funeral definitely. The the one when he came uh, down on the day that Lumpur Chah died. I'm I'm not sure, but it's it's very likely because by that time, by the early nineties, there were there weren't cell phones everywhere, but there were recording devices, uh, very very uh, widely spread. So I'm pretty sure that that, uh, that would have um, they would have taken the opportunity to record it again. You have to. Check with uh, the if you if Ajahn Goes goes back at uh, at Lokudra Vihara, he's the kind of information hound, so yeah, he would <laughs> he would know whether it was recorded and where you can get a copy. So. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Ajahn, are there any theories as to what behaviors of Ajahn Chah or habits or lifestyle aspects that he had in his early years? Um, were the main contributors to his brain disease in his early years? Like, was it um, um, just the intensity of practice? Or ah, it's interesting. It's a good question. Um, I haven't heard anything specifically named. I mean, he did have malaria for for many years. Um, and uh, there was times, also in the biography, there's, there's times when he thought he was going to die of it and was, you know, sort of, 
lying you know lying down and the whole sort of communities gathered around him and then he'd sort of sit up and get into meditation and then pouring the sweat and then he'd kind of collapse again so um i don't know if it was cerebral malaria but it was certainly um strong enough that they thought he was going to die of it uh, but um you know the northeast thailand is they're, they're, it's not quite i mean it's not the same now but back in the back in the old days <laughs> there were sort of two kinds of illness stomach illness and head illness that's you know is it is it rok tong or rok rok uh, rok hua you know is it a head illness or is it a gut illness and that's kind of it you know <laughs> so it was pretty basic uh, in some respects and that uh, lumpur cha himself was quite knowledgeable about herbal medicine and so he was able to tell people, okay, this plant is good for this, this plant is good for that. But um, uh, you know, following uh, following along in the 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 sort of forest tradition style of Lumpuman, it would be you're just letting illnesses run their course, and if you survive, you survive; if you die, you die. It's so that what kind of organic uh, changes in the system, what kind of damage might have been done along the way, I, you know, it's it's impossible to say. Um, but uh, I, I don't think I've ever heard any kind of um, direct ac direct attribution. Like, okay, well, his brain was in had had such damage because of this and that. Um, the uh, the the food was quite poor in the in northeast Thailand, so there wouldn't have been like a lot of fat. <laughs> Yeah, or the kind of uh, you know a lot of, uh, a lot of sugar because it just it wasn't around, you know, refined sugar and and lots of sort of fatty food, it just wasn't in the mix. So, but it'd be uh, it's the sort of thing that um, probably Arjun Pasna would know. Um, he was because he was he was the abbot of Wat Pananachat from that uh, from about ninety three uh, sorry from eighty three all the way through until Lumpur's passing away so he was very involved with um his nursing care and then people coming over from nanachat to to help out and so he was very uh, woven into that whole um period of of looking after lumpur's uh, um health concerns so he might have some idea but i've never heard it spoken of in particular I mean, because also he might well have had a whole string of diseases that nobody ever knew about, or that they they wouldn't they kind of might have been able to diagnose later on, but they they weren't sure about you know, sort of the traces of something that he might have had a few years before that it sort of came and went, and no one knew it was there. Because there was a lot also. There's this in that area you'd had um, scrub typhus, uh, typhoid. Uh, parasites of various kinds were very common, so that um, yeah, all kinds of things. You you are not at the top of the food chain in the not in the the Isan. You are a food source for a lot of different beings, so you, you get used to that. To so the conceit of, of thinking you're an independent human being who has the expectation of being healthy and other beings shouldn't come and occupy your body. It's not prominent. <laughs> you get used to that. You're you're a food source for uh, you know all kinds of other creatures and bacteria and viruses and such like. So that you 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 sort of cater for that along the way.
it's very interesting that for me, as a, as a Korean, like a, I've heard about sick moms, like a, when they're like a, when they have serious disease or lung cancer or something like that, then master, they usually they didn't expose their like a last moment to the public like this. Mm. It's very interesting because whenever I hear this long words like a sickness and death causes lots of stories and many people involved. It's very interesting because his I can feel his courage to be exposed to mm-hmm. at that like a, at that status. Like a, I think not many people would not want to be seen by so many people like that like a stage. Mm-hmm. Just horrible stage. But I I really it's very inspiring for me to to feel his courage. Like a, to to reveal himself as he is to many people. Yes. And then I think he welcomed many people to to come to him and to see mm. what what exactly like like a death. Yeah, see what I was telling you, Anicha. Exactly. That's, that's <laughs> very, very powerful for me. And, and in Korea, I have never seen any Gen master mm. dying like this. Uh-huh. Usually, they really like uh, make it really secret. So they they have surgery in the states or somewhere overseas. So we only hear the news from the newspapers. Mm-hmm. We we never had this kind of chance to see what it's like, you know, to to see Gen Master dying with a terrible disease because they just want to be like a memorized, remembered as a really like a big influential mm-hmm. master, not like a sick or dying person. Mm-hmm. But long stories are very inspiring for me in that cartoon. It's very, and then also in the temple when I see his picture, mm-hmm. with the bumper medal like visiting him, and just so so very powerful because he's so like uh, he he didn't care how he looked mm-hmm. to people. Yeah, that photograph in front of uh, Lumpur's uh, image is uh, that's the the day he died. So Lumpur Lumpur has just come from. Um, what and and is is uh, standing by Lumpur Chow's body the, that that very day. Yeah, it's it's very useful because there's this there's this way that we have as human beings. You know, remember me. I want you to remember me. Remember me like this. You know, <laughs> that uh, the 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 photographs that are taken at the at the end are sort of put away in a in an album or in a drawer, and then there's a sort of kind of looking good pictures of the ones that uh, are put up front, but. Uh, it's uh, it's also in the, the final Dhamma talks that Lumpur Chai is giving, um, like that one, uh, uh, Why Are We Here, uh, when he's talking about Kaya Wayang, the degeneration and decay of all things, that uh, he's saying, haven't I been telling you <laughs> all these years? This is about degeneration and decay, that uh, is, everything is subject to this. So here's, here's the teaching. You know, don't don't be upset. You know, don't don't be distressed. Don't think that something has gone wrong because this is this is uh, nature doing its thing. You know, nothing is out of order here, and that uh, <clears throat> so I, I felt that was that's a really nice, a really good way. I, I don't even know if Lumpur had ever ridden a horse, but that image of him um, describing about a horse that if a horse is really uh, if a horse is really bolting, you know, like it's kind of running out of control you just give it its head you, you don't try and stop it because it'll just uh, cause more trouble uh, when a, a was called bolting when a, a horse just is kind of completely out of control just charging away 
So then if a horse is bolting, you just you leave it, you, you give it free rein. But if it's if it's just sort of a, a going quickly, then you can kind of keep attention on the reins and you can slow it down and control it. So describing illness that way, I think it's very skillful that, uh, yeah, if it's uh, if it's still workable, you, you make your influence, you sort of take your medicine, you have your surgeries and you do what you can. But when the thing is, is sort of out of control and you just you know, take your hands off the reins and say, okay, <laughs> let, let this one go. And that, uh, that, that sense of acknowledging that, you know, we do what we can as in the human world, but ultimately it's not under personal control. It's not, there's no, there's fundamentally, there's, there's no choice that can be made. And that that's, that's the bottom line, that's the basic law. And uh, also, as he would often say, that aging and sickness and death, they, they have no manners, they're not polite. They don't ask permission, they say, excuse me, I'd like to make you ill, is that all right? You know, the, the aging process is due, can, can, can you get ready for this, please? It's like, no, they said they just show up and kick the door in, you know, they, they don't ask, they just arrive. They have, my uh, kuan, like they're not polite. Uh, and that um, that sense of uh, yeah, get ready for it. Uh, this, this, these these forces in your life are not polite. They're not friendly. They 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 are not gracious. They just show up and uh, do whatever they like, and, and you're not asked permission. So get ready for it. And that's uh, that's helpful for us to be realistic. Um, and we can hear the words. But uh, and but when it's our own body or somebody in our own family, suddenly boom! It's you know, it's your your uh, your wife, your husband, your mother, your child, and, or you. You know, it's suddenly like that that leg isn't working, or you know, the, your eye's gone out, or your 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 balance has just gone off, and then then it's a, a different story. But then it's but that's when these teachings are most helpful. And it's like, oh yeah, well, how could it be that my my mother or my child or my my body is not subject to the same thing, of course. And so, uh, it's it's very helpful to reflect, you know, and to to really bring the, these these teachings home because we can hear you know Lumpur Lumpur Chah talking about it and say, oh yeah that's right that's great just like a block of ice in the sun yeah right, and then when you look in the mirror and you realize that you, this is the block of ice. <laughs> Is this leg that's not working, or you know this uh, uh, this organ that's just gone kaput, or this uh, this tooth that's dropping out? Yeah. Oh, oh, oh dear! Yeah. But that that's where it becomes really so helpful because it's like if you, I don't know how many times, uh, if virtually every day, you know, but certainly a few times a week. Then, when people have uh, had members of their family die, or their children, or they have serious illnesses, I say, you know, I say, well, this is why the Buddha encourages us to to reflect. I'm of the nature to age. I'm of the nature to sick, and I'm of the nature to die. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. Will become separated from me. You prepare yourself so that when your kid is diagnosed with some fatal illness, or you, or was killed in a car crash, or that you, uh, you suddenly find that you've got diabetes, or You've gone deaf or blind, or that uh, you you know what to do. You've prepared yourself, you've done your homework. It's not a surprise, and that uh, so it, it's 
Uh, I wouldn't say it's every day, but certainly several times a week, I'm giving that advice to people and say, yeah, this is it's a shock to find out, you know, that you're ill or your your parent or your child is ill or this there's someone's um, had this crisis. But when we forget, you know, every single person in this room is going to die one day. Nobody gets off this boat alive, right? But something in us is, is surprised when I say those words. You know, I and do this you know, all the time with people. See, something in us goes. Oh. <laughs> there's a, like a second and a half where there's something that wants to negotiate. Well, because we don't, you know, we say, "Oh, I'm talking to Nejo, I know him. Talking, uh, you know, this person, that person. They, uh, uh, this is someone I know. This is someone I don't know. I know her name. I don't know his name. I know this person. Yeah. So we we kind of. We don't think, oh, this one's going to die, 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 this one's going to die. This one's gonna die. And him too, and him, and him, and him, and him. Yeah. <laughs> it's not how we think. But if you take a moment to consider, that's right. Every, every, you know, every single one of these bodies is going to stop breathing one day. It could be today. It could be in 50 years' time or longer. <clears throat> so then it, if you actively recollect that, then it... It's a it's a powerful gift because it prepares you. So then, then rather than feeling something's gone wrong or it shouldn't be this way, then you recognize, oh, of course, this was this was on the cards. Nothing's gone wrong. This was I should have read the small print. <laughs> and it's a tremendous kindness to to prepare ourselves and then to have that kind of a- attitude. So in a way, that last 10 years of, uh, of Lumpur's life was, a, was an amazing gift because it was, it was um, that sense of encouragement. It wasn't, as you say, it wasn't sort of just either very, sort of very quick or just sort of brushed out of the way, but it's right there as a sort of object lesson in, in Nietzsche. And, uh, and like I said, with that, that don't weep for me, weep for yourself. It's like, you know, <laughs> Lumpur having made his mind yeah, fine. Then he had nothing to worry about, even though his body was falling apart. But those of us whose minds were not yet fine, you know, that's where the, the trouble lies. You might have a healthy body with all bits at work, but so what? You know, if your your mind is still wrapped up with greed, hatred, and delusion, then it's, uh, it's you know there's still uh, still work to be done. Okay, I think that's enough for today. But one more reading tomorrow, which is predictably called "More, More to It." The last few pages of this chapter.